According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Matthew 16 and Mark 8. Matthew 16 and Mark 8 are passages. I'm going to bring up my Word document here as well. I've gone ahead and combined episode 44 with episode 45. And so... I'll go ahead and bring it up so you can read it. It's also in your uh, Harmony of the Gospels. Uh, So go ahead in your notes. You can go ahead and combine them because it's going to have one single... um, one single outline. Episode 44 is the Pharisees increase attack from Matthew 16 verses 1 through 4 and Mark 8 verses 10 through 13. Combining that with episode 45, disciples carelessness condemned and the blind man healed. And that's the next paragraph in Matthew 16 and in Mark 8. In Matthew 16, it's verses 5 through 12. And in Mark 8, it's verses 14 through 26. And so we're combining the two outline points from the harmony and uh, combining them into one outline of study, which uh, at the moment has nine points of study. We have uh, covered the first four of them last week, and we'll move on into five through nine this week. All right, so does that make sense? All right. Let's go ahead and open with prayer and we'll jump right on it. Almighty Father, we thank you for the truth of your word and for the privilege and blessing that it is this morning to assemble together. I thank you for uh, your sovereignty and work that has cleared the uh, work schedules and school schedules and every other schedule and allowed for these brothers and sisters to be with us this morning to take in your truth. We ask for your hand of blessing upon our study. In particular, Father, as we have a little bit of fun this morning and we look at some human wisdom, we look at some uh, earthly expressions, let us uh, remind ourselves that uh, what is uh, the difference between the heavenly wisdom and the earthly wisdom, that which is from above, which is pure and sensible and for our blessing, and that which is from below. And, Father, recognizing that even when there is secular truth involved, the source of it, Father, we want to identify for what it is and not confuse the one with the other. So keep our eyes focused on you, and we thank you in Christ Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Let me make sure this is turned off. There we go. As far as Pharisees increase attack is concerned, if this was up to me and if, if I was the one writing the Harmony of the Gospels, I would rename this Pharisees repeat attack, uh, a repeat attack from one they had done before, one that they will do again. They continue to keep saying, show us a sign, show us a sign, show us a sign. And such is their un, uh, disingenuous debate technique that no matter what he shows them, they're not satisfied. 
And no matter what evidence he provides, they will look at it and look at him straight in the face and say, well, you haven't shown me anything. Show me some evidence. See, and it's a debate technique, by the way, that's utilized in a lot of different realms. Uh, I've, if you ever find yourself beating your head against a wall with somebody on any subject and it seems like you're not getting anywhere with them, this may be a technique that they're using. See, and I've encountered it in secular political discussions. I've encountered it in spiritual theological discussions. I've encountered it in um, really the debates between conservative and liberal theology. And it comes back to the point with the, with the liberal theologians, of course, is that they don't believe the Bible is the Bible, as you and I understand the Bible, that God wrote it, it's God-breathed and inspired. Your uh, liberal theology won't accept that. And so right from the beginning, you're kind of stuck. We'll notice this in the subpoints. Uh, first of all, Matthew records that this incident is a cooperative work of the Pharisees and Sadducees. That itself becomes noteworthy when they're willing to set aside their differences uh, in order to come together in their attack against Jesus. Uh, we find that to be similar today where false religions will set aside their differences in order to come together and cooperate in their attack against Christians. Uh, also, the distinction between Magadan and Dalmanutha uh, is a contrast in the two different accounts. When we compare and contrast Matthew with Mark, they're not uh, contradictory. They are rather complementary, and we have no problem with that. Really, the bulk of our study was wrapped up under point three, the repeated demands. They were repeatedly demanding Christ to show his evidence, no matter how many times he plainly did so. And this is the... Um, Motivation of the adversary. This is a technique of the adversary. This actually becomes a technique of disinformation. It is a way to promote the lie. And if you ever do studies on propaganda techniques, if you ever do studies on how the Nazis, for example, kept pushing the big lie or how other groups will push a big lie, how evolution is promoted by repeatedly, repeatedly, repeatedly putting it forth, putting it forth, and you cross over at some point from a theory to a fact and now it's accepted scientific fact and if you doubt it then you're you're some kind of buffoon for for not uh embracing what the scientific world knows now is is undisputed undeniable fact as it were and so this this is a methodology of of disinformation that is repeatedly putting forth the lie and repeatedly repeatedly demanding evidence for a contrary view and no matter how much evidence is presented, you stare that evidence in the face and say, well, you haven't told me anything. You haven't said anything. Give me some evidence. Give me some proof. And, and you lay out a point, a point of study, and, then, and it's as if you didn't even say anything. And it's as if you didn't even give a verse and say, well, that, that doesn't mean anything. Give me, give me a verse. Give me proof. See. All right. So this is the methodology employed here. Despite the undeniable evidence... The religious leaders still resisted his message. And then here's where we spent the time last week to note that in chapter 3, they confessed their acknowledgement that, that they understood he was from heaven. They understood that he was a prophet sent from God, for no one can do these miracles that you do unless God is with him. That confession by Nicodemus, that admission in, in John chapter 3 is startling. And then you combine that with the statement in chapter 11 and verse 47, again, not denying the miracle, but recognizing that they had to do something about it. The chief priests and the Pharisees convened a council and were saying, what are we doing for this man is performing many signs? Note that is a confession. He is doing the signs. They don't dispute that he did them. 
If we let him go on like this, all men will believe in him. <laughs> now, we might say, hallelujah, praise the Lord, let him keep going. Let's let everybody believe in him. And they say, we must stop that. The Romans will, the result being, the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. And they were viewing it politically, economically, culturally, everything but spiritually. And uh, they realized that the people that have the most to lose when the kingdom of heaven is established are the people that are in charge right now. <laughs> that cosmos that's passing away and along with it, it's lust. When this present arrangement is done away with, they are the ones that have everything to lose. See, and uh, they do not want to lose hold of that power. Remember, signs in themselves are not the end all for prophetic ministry. There will be false signs that will be coming. Um, in Matthew 24, 24, Mark 13, 22, we realize that signs are not the end all, that the signs were designed to be the evidence that you paid attention to the message, that the signs combined with the message then demonstrated God's presence. And the real issue was not his failure to exhibit the signs, but their failure to believe. And that, again, is a passage in John, John chapter 12 and verse 37. But though he had performed so many signs before them, yet they were not believing in him. All right. And this fulfills the scripture, what Isaiah says, seeing they will not see, uh, they will not perceive the aspect of hardness of heart, they're preventing that. Under point four, where we ran out of time, the objective for the sign request was to tempt Jesus into disobeying the Father, showing a sign was designed as a temptation, and the aspects on peirazzo, when we contrast it with dokimazzo, I cannot stress that enough. Peirazzo is a temptation or a snare, the goal of which is to bring about somebody's fall. The goal of which is to uh, to see what they're made of and to demonstrate that what they're made of is uh, humanity. And what humanity wants to do is selfishly uh, defy the will of the Father. That's what temptation's about. That's what the snares are about. The devil, when he tempted uh, uh, the Lord, was not done in Matthew chapter 4. He just simply departed for an opportune time. And those opportune times presented themselves throughout the ministry of Jesus Christ. This was one of them. Show us a sign. Just like turn these stones into bread. Do a work of power apart from something that the Father is directing you. Realizing that, that the Son is under instructions to do nothing of himself but to only do that which the Father has granted, to only teach that which the Father has commanded, to only perform that which the Father has directed, and, uh, and no more, see. And to only accomplish that which the Holy Spirit is empowering, nothing of himself, only making use of the power of the Holy Spirit throughout his prophetic ministry. And so this is the role of the tempter. The tempter continues to do that today when he tempts believers into doing things apart from the Father's will. Things that themselves may be noble. They may be admirable. They may be, uh, intrinsically, there's nothing wrong with, with those activities. And yet, if they're not a sign from the Father, if they're not a part of what Jesus Christ would have us to do, why do we want to be engaged in them? Are they, do they not at that point become a distraction? Do they become a hindrance? We want to realize all may be lawful, but not all is profitable. And if, if I'm personally, if I'm out there engaged in something that's lawful, but it's taking time away or energy or effort or money or resources or some, something else, and it then harms the church, 
or it harms my family or, or whatever else, why do I want to be engaged in that? And sadly, so many ministries get derailed because of this. The ministry gets derailed not because of an immorality failure. Ministry gets derailed by the attention, the focus being distracted and being turned to non-issues. And they forget the primary imperative that is to teach the word, reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction. And they get involved in all these other deals. All right. So uh, the word studies on perazzo, the participle ha perazzon, he is the tempter. And uh, we understand the nature of conflict in our present age. We move on to point five, the issue on human wisdom. Human wisdom has provided Proverbs. For all kinds of things. Here in this passage, we see Proverbs for weather forecasts. Human wisdom has provided Proverbs. Human wisdom has provided Proverbs. See, Proverbs are not unique to the Bible. They're not unique to the Hebrew culture of the uh, Old Testament times. Uh, Many pagan cultures have all kinds of Proverbs. Uh, Many cultures drew great... Uh, prestige for the uh, the particular uh, noteworthiness of their wisdom. Uh, the men of the East were were renowned as having tremendous wisdom, and uh, we even have glimpses of that. Where Daniel uh, obviously was a man of great wisdom, but then there were other men of the East that were known for their wisdom of the of the Arabic culture, known for their wisdom. In the Orient, they were uh, you've got Confucius and others, and and they were noteworthy for their wisdom, their proverbs, their statements. Now, in terms of earthly uh, cosmos wisdom, were they, were they wise? Yeah, they were very wise in earthly terms, compared, you know, comparatively on a relative scale. Uh, obviously, when you have divine revelation that's communicating truth, uh, Solomon's Proverbs are the, are the pinnacle of wisdom because they're not coming from himself, they're coming from God, of course. And yet, within the realm of human wisdom, can we glean principles? Are there principles to be gleaned that would have an earthly application? All right, so let's talk about some of these. But we don't want to confuse the two. That's the thing. We don't want to take the earthly Proverbs and elevate them. And we don't want to take the divine Proverbs that are God-breathed, inspired, living, abiding, powerful, for the destruction of fortresses, word of God. We don't want to diminish those and bring those down to the level of earthly wisdom see and that's what the world does that's what pluralism does that they they take the bible and say well yeah those are good words of wisdom words to live by but so are the writings of confucius and so are the the hindu principles and so are the buddhist principles and so you know there's there's things you can glean out of the quran blah 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 right no Let's not confuse the two and let's not elevate the one and diminish the other to try to put them on the, pl- on the same playing field. They do the same thing with Jesus Christ. Oh, he was a teacher. They say, oh, Jesus was a moral man. He was a good man. He was a teacher. And they, they bring him down to, a, to a, a playing field and they elevate Muhammad and Buddha and, Joseph, and uh, you know, Joseph Smith and all these other phonies. So. They wanted a sign from heaven, but he replied to them, when it is evening, you say it will be fair weather for the sky is red. And in the morning, there will be a storm today for the sky is red and threatening. Do you know how to discern the appearance of the sky, but cannot discern the signs of the times? Now, it's interesting. He asked that question, but he does not wait for their response. He just moves on 
to declare an evil and adulterous generation seeks after a sign. So the question is rather rhetorical since he doesn't take the time to wait for their answer. And it's self-evident that this is their answer. Yes, they they can cling to earthly proverbs, but they don't have a a uh, they're not equipped to handle spiritual truth to handle the word of god that's the the aspect the natural mind and the carnal mind cannot apprehend the things of god for they are spiritually uh perceived all right such axioms are readily accepted by human wisdom and there's a large collection of them there's a whole new wikipedia project called wiki proverbs such axioms are readily accepted by human wisdom and wiki proverbs has a large collection we're going to have a little bit of fun with them here this morning. You may know a lot of these as far as it goes. Some of them are uh, old wives' tales and whatnot. But hey, if you've got a room with some old wives in it, then what do you do? You <laughs> have some fun. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We'll see if this goes ahead. Of course, today would be the day that we lose internet or something. And I didn't print them out. I figured it was kind of a waste of time. I'll just pull the website up. All right, wikiproverbs.org. And... Uh, also, we can bring up, while I'm at it, there is a page on weather lore. Do you all ever use Wikipedia at all? Is that your home page on your... <laughs> okay. Well, good. Just, uh, I, I enjoy it, but there's some snares. Look out. There's some... some propaganda and false information and things and and don't take it as if it's god breathing inspired check the sources and the, the better articles there are some wonderful articles tremendous articles in fact there are some resources on wikipedia for aramaic the aramaic language and the aramaic scriptures and things remember when we talked about ephathah and maranatha and some of the aramaic terms wikipedia has got some of the preeminent aramaic articles that you can find so if you can sift through some of the garbage and, and handle the good stuff Weather lore is the body of informal folklore related to the prediction of the weather. It has been a human desire for millennia to make accurate weather predictions. Why? Why would that be? And uh, I even clipped, you're going to see my blatant plagiarism here in a moment when I get back to the outline. Let's see, where did I put it? Center point C. Tremendous human effort is expended in ascertaining the future. Um, for the farmer wanting to plant crops, for the merchant about to send ships on trade, foreknowledge of tomorrow's circumstances might mean the difference between success and failure. You know, from antiquity, weather and predicting the weather has been, uh, has been huge. All right, I'll come back to the subpoints here in a moment. So there you see my blatant plagiarism. Um, 
Oral and written history is full of rhymes and anecdotes, adages meant to guide the uncertain in, undet- in determining whether the morrow will bring weather fair or foul. For the farmer wanting to plant crops, for the merchant about to send ships on trade, foreknowledge of tomorrow's circumstances might mean the difference between success and failure. I just read that somewhere. Prior to the invention of the mercury barometer, it was very difficult to gather numerical data of any predictive value, even though there were devices such as the weather stick, which gave some indication of moisture changes. The only instrument of any reliability was human experience. And so there's a lengthy uh, collection of poems and rhymes and adages. And what Wikipedia has done here in their page on weather, weather lore, they've kind of classified them. And they've classified them in the ones that are pretty accurate and why, and the ones that are totally insane and don't work out and why they don't, and uh, different things like that. So the accuracy of weather lore, true lore and why. For instance, red sky at morning, sailor warning, red sky at night, sailor's delight. Uh, Different variations of that. If you're ever in England, the United Kingdom version says red sky at night, shepherd's delight. See, and I like shepherds better than sailors anyway, so (laughs) as far as that goes. um, Different things like that. Even mentions the Bible use of it there in Matthew chapter 16. Shakespeare made use of it in his play Venus and Adonis. Mackerel sky. Towering cumulus. Rain before wind. Here's one. When rain comes before the wind, dory's gear and vessel mind. When wind comes before the rain, soon you'll make the set again. Admittedly, these other ones are more obscure, are they not? <laughs> Low pressure regions. When the wind is blowing in the north, no fisherman should set forth. When the wind is blowing in the east, tis not fit for man nor beast. When the wind is blowing in the south, it brings the food over the fish's mouth. When the wind is blowing in the west, that is when fishing's best. How true is that? Well, this article will tell you. It goes through and it breaks down the science on it. Different parts of the world, too, are different in, uh, in that respect. But in these latitudes that are not too far from the equator, they explore some of those things. All right. Anyway, that's weather lore. I'm not going to go into more on that. Different things about fog. Okay. But look at all these English proverbs. How many of these did you know? And and stop to consider how many do we use every day? And then do we do we even put thought into their biblical standard or not? See, a friend in need is a friend indeed. You ever use that? Think about it. Is it true? Is it biblical? Is um, is it unbiblical? Is there a verse or a context or a uh, an application where that would be contrary to the scriptures? A friend sticks closer than a brother. Yeah, there's a scripture, and who is that friend? That's actually a prophecy to, to Jesus Christ. That's right. All right. Um, practice makes perfect. Is that true? <laughs> Only in a human context. Okay. 
but are there areas where no matter, let's face it, no matter how much practice you pour into it, no matter how much practice you pour into it, you're just, face it, that's right, you're not, I will never, there you go. There are things that you're just not going to do. You're not designed, you're not equipped, you're not, you can practice, practice, practice till three years after the rapture, and in this face it, your talent level is not going to, uh, how about seeing is believing? Seeing is believing. Is that biblical? Okay, that's right. We, if you've got a biblical framework to understand the difference between earthly sight and divine viewpoint, there are a lot of things you cannot trust your eyes on, and that you may see the human mind is conditioned to see what they want to see in many respects, and uh, there is a danger in that. Every cloud has a silver lining. Every cloud has a... Is that biblical? Can you think of a scripture? Romans 8.28, all things work together for good. So if in fact, if in fact there's something bad going on at the moment, that silver lining meaning it's going to work together for good. So far as I'm in the will of God, so far as I'm called according to his purpose and accomplishing that purpose. That's right. Okay. I guess that goes with every rose has its thorn. There's the opposite. Is that true? Somebody said, oh, no, we've got a species of thornless roses out there somewhere that, <laughs> that they have manipulated and genetically uh, breeded the thorns out of the thing, maybe. I don't know. In the world, he will have tribulation. Okay. Better late than never. Is that biblical? Yeah, better late than never. It may be. That's right. It may be that if it's not the Lord's timing, then late actually is not appropriate. That if this was the time for something, it, does that mean that uh, accomplishing it after the fact is still acceptable? It may no longer be. That's right. We don't understand that the right thing done in the wrong way is still wrong. Oh, so many of these things. How about, uh, let's see. He who laughs, laughs last, laughs best. <laughs> okay. Do not cast your pearls before swine. Yeah, where do you think they got that one? How about there's an exception to every rule? There's an exception to every rule. Now, what about that rule? Is there an exception to that rule? That there's an exception to every rule? <laughs> and, and if there's an exception to that rule, then that means that there's... Is there a rule that does not have an exception? Does this one have an exception? Okay. Now, now we're having a little bit of fun with it, but what, you, what you we're doing also this morning is we're starting to think in terms of the logic that goes behind these arguments. And the Pharisees that kept demanding, show us proof, show us proof, show us proof are engaged in a flawed debate technique or they're engaged in a disingenuous debate technique that is not going to be satisfied with any amount of evidence that he puts forth. And so the idea of circular reasoning, the idea of, of fallacies, logical fallacies that are employed in these disingenuous uh, techniques are, are important. So yeah, there's an exception to every rule. If you give an absolute statement like that, 
then even that has to have an exception. And if that has an exception, then that means there's a rule out there that does not have an exception. Right? And if there's a rule out there in the universe that has no exceptions, then this statement here becomes false because this statement says there's an exception to every rule. So either this one has an exception or this is the only one that doesn't have an exception. And if this is the only one that doesn't have an exception, then it disproves itself. Because this says that there's an exception to every rule. Okay? And if you followed that, you get a gold star for the morning. Now, if you followed that, then uh, you're going to do well in a work assignment that, uh, or an apologetics ministry or a work assignment where uh, somebody wants to... Um, Somebody wants to cast doubt upon the scriptures or somebody wants to debate evolution or act as if there, there can be no God and things like that. Because undoubtedly when they pursue those, when they defend their, their atheistic views, they have to create their own self-defeating argument. And if you can spot that, then uh, you'll get them every time. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. That's a rule. And there's no exception to that rule. That's right. See, this is, it comes back to the lie that says there are no absolutes. The world, the cosmos wisdom would have us believe that there are no absolutes. But that statement itself is an absolute. That's right. There are no absolutes. Well, that's, that, that in itself is an absolute statement. And how do you, how do you hold fast to that if... Your premise is that it, it cannot exist. You're holding fast to that which you have said does not exist. That's an absolute morality. All right. So many of these other ones on here. Uh, I don't want to take the whole hour on this. Don't count your chickens before they've hatched. Here's a long list of don't. Th here, let's go through the ones that we're not supposed to do, and then we'll, we'll get back to Scripture. Um, don't count your chickens before they hatched. Is that biblical? Is there a proverb or is there a principle of scripture? Don't count your chickens before they've hatched. Paul says, I do not consider myself having laid hold of it yet. Nor do I consider that I have attained it. I think it's consistent with the concepts that we are living one day at a time. We are uh, pressing on to the goal, realizing that until... He takes us home. We've not yet. We should not consider that anything is uh, is uh, is done. Don't carry your coal to Newcastle. I don't understand that one. Newcastle has where they mine coal. So there's no point in taking it there because there's tons of it there already. Yeah. Okay. It'd be like importing apples to Washington State or something. Okay. Don't cry over spilt milk. Is that biblical? Yeah, you can't do anything about something that's done. You can't change it, crying about it, beating yourself up with guilt doesn't change the fact that it's already spilt, it's already lost. What are you going to do about it? Forgetting what lies behind, reaching forward and what lies ahead. Okay. Don't get even, get odd. <laughs> okay. Don't judge a book by its cover. Is that biblical? 
Why? Okay, the Pharisees judged Jesus and his disciples that they were uneducated, untrained men. What's another example? God knows the heart. That's right. Samuel looked at Eliab and said, ooh, there's the next king. There's a God. And God said, no, no, God looks at the heart. I want the, I want the little one. I want the, the youngest one out there shepherding the sheep. Don't put all your eggs in one basket. All right. Anyway, what you do in life echoes in eternity. Gladiator, yeah. But now, you see, there's a, you got to watch these movies. That's they're they're edifying. <laughs> All right, now let's not confuse. And, and you've all done this exercise very well this morning because you've got a background in Scripture and you've got a background to be able to evaluate and discern and, and be able to put things up against a biblical framework. That's wonderful. What we don't want to do is confuse worldly wisdom with divine wisdom. All right? Uh, what goes around comes around. Is that biblical? Yeah, you do reap what you sow, but are you the one that's supposed to dish it out? No, vengeance is mine, saith the Lord, I will repay. See, the thing is, is what goes around comes around all too often puts human beings in the mindset that, okay, you got me this time, but I'm getting you next time. Okay? And so it tends to be very, uh, when the cat's away, the mice will play. And... Hmm. The Lord helps those who help themselves. Actually, this one came up in my training, actually. This was one that was, uh, <laughs> is that, what's the problem with that one? Mm-hmm. Okay, good. Good, good, good. All right. God's principles, this is point B. God's principles are often subject to infinite skepticism. God's principles are often subject to infinite skepticism. And by infinite, we're talking about, give me more proof. Give me more proof. Give me more proof. You wonder what the biggest one is I find today? You, they, they have these endless debates. You listen to radio, you know, Sammy and Bob, or you listen to uh, Sergeant Sam and Ed, and they're going round and round and round. How about spare the rod, spoil the child? Now, God wrote that. That's in the Bible. That is a principle. That is a true principle. That, that failure to administer corporal punishment in the formative stages and the upbringing of a human being is disaster. The term spoil is, is pretty, pretty explicit on that. And that human beings that are brought up in those formative stages without the rod. Keep in mind what the rod is. And, and what do we have today? Modern wisdom today rejects that. That's right. Oh, that's barbaric. Oh, that's primitive. Oh, that's old-fashioned. Oh, that's damaging. Right. Yeah. That it, it, all we're doing is we're creating a cycle of violence and we're, we're bringing up a culture that resorts to violence and all this other stuff. And so worldly wisdom will put God's principle up to an infinite standard of skepticism that, that says you, that, that will dispute that. And yet they put their own 
wisdom up there as if it's unassailable, as if it needs to be accepted. That, oh, these methods are the right methods of child training. See, we want to use positive reinforcement. We want to use uh, group, uh, you know, all this other stuff. God's principles are often subject to infinite skepticism. Why is it? And, and he uses the, the weather illustration here. He uses the, the, the proverb or the, the axiom. He says, you guys accept that. Just accept it. Here's worldly wisdom. You don't even question it. It's just a part of daily life. And yet God's principles, why are you so skeptical about what God's revealing? As far as them re- accepting the revealed Christ or as far as unbelievers today accepting the, uh, the, the gospel message. So God's principles are often subject to infant skepticism. And, uh, and that's a problem. That's a contrast to how human wisdom readily accepted. Such axioms are readily accepted. But God's principles are subject to infinite skepticism. See, you can say you can go walk up to any unbeliever and tell them, you know, look before you leap, and they'll say, "Okay, makes sense." They'll accept that. But you walk up to them and you say, uh, "Commit your life to the daily teaching of God's word." Oh, you talking? What kind? Of, what are you? Some kind of fanatic? Right? Tremendous human effort is expended in ascertaining the future. Christ points that out. Consider it. We have an entire industry in every field imaginable. We have a tremendous industry dedicated to speculation about the future. Effectively, that's the... that's. That's the realm in which capitalism exists. What it, not only do you, ha, you have to recognize what today's market is, but what are tomorrow's markets? What is today's market going to be tomorrow? Uh, you know, are the oil prices rising or falling? What, what's going to happen in this market? What's going to happen in that market? What's going to happen in energy? What's going to happen in in uh, commodities? What's going to grow? What's going to crash? And, and to be honest, a lot of these guys don't care what grows and what crashes, just so long as they got their money in the right place. And if you know what's going to crash, you can make money there too. The, the idea is you've got to know when it's going to happen and what's going to happen. Not only with weather, with economics, with politics, in every realm. Even... Um, Thing, uh, oil exploration, other things. It's all looking forward to, to down the road. We know what the reserves are today. What are the sources going to be 10 years from now? It's all about down the road. Think about the, uh, the actuaries and the insurance business. And I, they're, all, they're not worried about today. They need to know what's going to happen down the road. The real estate markets, what's going to happen down the road? See, and we do the same thing. It's prudent to do that. One of the plots of land that's available right now is a little bit northeast of here. And yet, one of the things we consider, you know, with the new loop they put in, what's, what's the city going to do over the next 20 years? Is it going to grow out that direction? Would that be a pretty prime spot to, to plant a church and have a, 
have uh, a presence in that new part of the city that's, that doesn't exist now, but will probably exist 10, 20 years from now? Just stop to consider. Now, if, if this is the mindset for humans, right? Looking forward, considering, realizing, you know, animals don't do this beyond the seasonal things that they do in storing food for the winter. Okay, beyond that, animals are not focused on the future. Animals are not wrapped up over, you know, what their children and grandchildren are going to do. Okay? This is entirely human. And when you consider what God's word has already done, God's word has revealed the future. He's already done it. We have the eschatological framework of prophecy to tell us what to expect between here and the fullness of time. Here and the great abdication in uh, the end of the fullness of time to eternity future. We have, we don't have every day spelled out, but we have the framework. We know rapture ends the church. We know tribulation. We know second advent. We know millennium. We know uh, great white throne. We know new heavens and new earth. We know fullness of time. We know great abdication. We can spell out the, the eschatological events between now and Omega, eternity future. And it's already spelled out. And yet, does the human realm care? Does even the regenerate world care? If you take born-again believers in Jesus Christ, and you obviously the unbelievers, throw them out, but just take born-again believers, and how many have an interest in the Word of God? A smaller group, that's right, that are truly disciples. And then take, okay, let's just take the non-disciples away and just take disciples, believers that are abiding in the Word of God. How many are eschatologically minded? How many are focused on rightly dividing the Word of Truth, the consistent teaching of God's Word, and a focus on prophetic material? Very few. Even those that have an interest in the word, they want the, the practical sermons. They want to come to church, get a few proverbs, a few maxims, a few axioms, feel happy about what they're doing and go out in the world and live their daily life. Living in the world and for the world. How many believers, born again believers, disciples, abiding in the word, living in the word of God, have prophecy as their focus? Actively consider the things to come. Because discerning the signs of the times is described here by Jesus Christ as a necessity. And he says you can't even do that. But Jesus describes it as a necessity. We should be oriented to who we are, where we are, and what we're doing. We are church-age believers in the body of Christ with an imminent rapture pending. A trumpet at any moment. You think it's vital for us to ascertain the signs of the times? Now, there are no prophecies for the rapture, but there are signs, indicators, conditions, situations that are preparing what Tommy Ice calls table setting. If, if there are conditions that will be present in the tribulation... And we see more and more and more of them present today. 
does that not indicate that the conditions that we know will be present in the tribulation are imminent, that we're on the verge? See, if you can outline, let's just say hypothetically, you can outline 64 principles that will be, con- that will be present in the tribulation. But today on the earth, you only see four or five of them in existence. You would think that, okay, there's, there's a lot more to be done between now and the tribulation. It may be after the rapture, it might be before the rapture, but there are conditions on the earth that have to take place before Israel is prepared to sign their treaty with Antichrist. But if you start to see 62 to 63 of them already in existence today before the rapture, and you realize, you know what, there's only one or two small glitches left after the trumpet, and those can be put in place overnight. How does that get your attention in terms of the imminency of the rapture of the church? They're not prophecies of the rapture. They are signs of the times, indicators that the table is being set. You know, that's an indicator. (laughs) If you walk into the dining room and you find that the table's been set, you find that there are plates at every seat, you find that the silverware is laid out, you find that the serving dishes are there, you find that the... The, uh, the, the food is steaming and you find that the, the beverages are poured and, and, and everything is all laid out there. And you find that people are actually seated and yours is the only, the only chair that doesn't have a, a, a posterior planted on it, right? And you, you look at all of that and you go, what is it, dinner time or something? <laughs> you know, figure it out. Yes, it's dinner time. You were called, but you weren't listening. It should be obvious that it's dinner time because the table is set. And so table setting is an important concept. It's not that there are prophecies of the rapture, but seeing the table set for the conditions that will be present after the rapture is an appropriate application of what this passage talks about, where we are to have discernment of the signs of the times. God's word has revealed the future and place before mankind the expectations of obedience. The expectations of obedience. All right. Point six. Jesus repeated his earlier message regarding an evil and adulterous generation. I'm just going to remind you of this. You should have your notes from the Galilean ministry episode 25. Jesus repeated his earlier message. Regarding an evil and adulterous generation. So if you have your notes still from Galilean Ministry 25, Jesus answers to a demand for a sign. The text uh, goes back to Matthew 12, verse 39, Luke 11, verse 29. He said, An evil and adulterous generation seeks after a sign, but no sign shall be given it except the sign of Jonah. You want a sign to figure out? Watch me be raised from the dead on the third day. And then uh, recognize that what you're rejecting is not just a prophet. You're rejecting the Christ. All right. Now, they uh, are going to head back across the water again. And all this back and forth, back and forth. You wonder, couldn't Jesus make up his mind? What size is he supposed to be on? Why does he keep crossing back and forth, crossing back and forth? Well, remember, he's doing everything according to the will of the Father. 
going everywhere that the Father directs, delivering every message the Father supplies. It's leaving the uh, disciples a bit frustrated. In fact, they forget to bring bread. Point seven. In re-recrossing the Sea of Galilee, the disciples forgot or they neglected to bring any bread. So this is point seven in the outline. This actually crosses us over to the disciples' carelessness in episode 45. And let's look at verse 5 of Matthew 16. The disciples came to the other side of the sea, but they forgot, they had forgotten to bring any bread. So this is point seven. We've got seven, eight, and nine. And we've got ten minutes remaining. Well, it's going to be close. In re-re-crossing. Now, how many times have they gone back and forth? Remember, the, the feeding of the 5,000 was over on the east, and then they crossed to the west, and they had ministry there. And then they went to Phoenicia, came back around the long way around, got back to the east side again, and fed 4,000. All right? Now they've crossed to the west again, and Pharisee attack. Show us a miracle. Show us a miracle. All right? Back to the east side then. Back to the east side then. And all both times the feeding has taken place, it's been on the east side. All right. Now, we don't know all the details about... We know Judas was the treasurer. Uh, we know that the first time when he fed the 5,000, he specifically quizzed uh, Philip as far as... How much money would it take to feed all these people and purchase food? We don't know that that was Philip's responsibility. Was the uh, you know was he the quartermaster? God bless the quartermaster. Was he uh, was he the one responsible for purchasing their food? Was he the commissary? Uh, uh, we don't know. All right. Obviously, there was some kind of logistics involved because he had a party of, of upwards of we don't know how many twenty or so that that traveled thirty or so that traveled everywhere Jesus went. Jesus, the 12, the ones beyond the 12 that uh, traveled throughout the ministry, plus the women that are mentioned, could be 20 to 30 in this traveling party. And that's, that's a, logis a logistical consideration. Where are they going to sleep? What are they going to eat? Uh, you know, if you're, if, if you're taking 20, that's 60 meals a day. If you're taking 30, that's 90 meals a day. What are you doing? It gets easier, of course, if the Lord can just multiply the loaves and the fishes, doesn't it? <laughs> okay now stop to consider well we'll, we'll get into this text because he he rebukes them he's done it twice now how often did manna appear to the children of israel once it started it continued until they conquered until they crossed into the land of promise and conquered the land manna once it began and it was given to the, to the Exodus generation, it was given to the wilderness generation, and it continued until, until uh, they crossed into the promised land. Now here's Jesus, providing the loaves to the 5,000, providing the loaves to the 4,000. We have no reason to believe that that stopped. I think that he provided for them from this point forward after he rebukes them here in this chapter. All right, but let's talk about their neglect. Epilanthanomai, to forget to be inattentive to, to neglect. It's kind of, you can forget after the fact, but 
generally you forgot beforehand. When do you forget? Usually you forget ahead of time, but you don't realize you forgot until it's too late. So the idea on forgetfulness, it takes place beforehand, but you don't realize it until afterwards. And at the time that uh, you have already forgotten, but you've not yet realized it, then you are neglecting, you are overlooking, or you are not concerned. The verbs epilanthanamai, number 1950, is the Strong's Index. And uh, this also ties in real well, this lanthano part. Take the epi prefix off the front of it, lanthano, with a long omega. Uh, that was the verb that was used when Jesus went to uh, Phoenicia. And he tried to escape notice. It was his desire to basically be forgotten. He was trying to escape notice. He wanted to uh, fly below the radar. He wanted to be overlooked. He tried to have a season in obscurity where um, he could have some time with his disciples and that the crowds and the multitudes and the demands of ministry would overlook him. And that was Lanthano. And we were told in the Gospel of Mark that he was unable to be uh, obscured. He was unable to be unnoticed. He tried to be unnoticed. He was unable to be unnoticed. And so there was more work to do. He did not get the time away that he thought he wanted. All right. Remember, we may have plans and desires. The Father is the one that works out what we need to do for his good pleasure. And so that's lanthano. Now, this, this verb is a compound of that, it's, but it's a similar concept. Epi is an intensifying compound like gnosis versus epinosis. Epi lanthano in a middle voice, lanthanomai. Epilanthanomai is the idea, the same thing. Christ wanted to be overlooked. He wanted to be obscure. Epilanthanomai means that you're going to overlook something. You're going to forget something. You're going to put it out of your mind. You're not going to pay attention to it. All right? And that can be a good thing. It can be a bad thing. Because if it's something you're supposed to be focused on, then you better not forget about it. But if it's something you're not supposed to worry about, then this is a good thing. See, so we want to understand that forgetfulness is not sinful if it's something we're commanded to forget. Forgetfulness is sinful if it's something we were commanded to be diligent about. Okay? So now here they are. They're forgetful. Either they're inattentive, they neglected. They might, you know, start offering excuses like, oh, we, we were going to buy bread here on the western shore. We didn't know. <laughs> we, we thought we were going to stick around here in town. We'd buy supplies here. Capernaum's on the western shore. This is our hometown. We thought we were going to get supplies here. And now we're back in the boat going back to the other side again? We didn't know. Well, did you ask? Did you think about it? All right. Now, it's interesting because the inattentiveness, the inattentiveness is... Uh, in, in food is one thing, but inattentiveness to Bible class is something else. Because, and, and obviously we're going to run out of time, we're not going to, we'll have to save episode 45 for next week, but look at the reaction here. Uh, the disciples came to the other side of the sea, but they had forgotten to bring any bread. And Jesus said to them, watch out and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. He has a Bible class to teach them 
about the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees, but they're so caught up in earthly things that they can't even pay attention to, his, to the Bible class. That's what they're really neglecting. And uh, so they start debating amongst themselves. They began to discuss this amongst themselves, saying, he said that because we didn't bring any bread. <laughs> he has a message to deliver them about Pharisee leaven and Sadducee leaven. And it's a, it's a powerful spiritual message. And it pertains to what we just got through studying about this excessive demand for signs, the excessive demand for proof, the, uh, the continual attitude of being caught up in yourself and what you're doing and your power and your, your uh, dominion over other people. That's what he's concerned about. And he wants the, affairs, uh, the, the disciples to learn that lesson. And they can't. Because they're wrapped up in, in, uh, in bread. And he's trying to use it as, a, as an illustration and they're missing the point. They're missing the doctrine because they're caught up in the illustration just as the, the Pharisees were caught up in the, uh, the parable here of, of the, the weather proverb and didn't understand what the spiritual truth was behind it. All right. And he calls them men of little faith. Men of little faith. That's a rebuke to believers. That's a rebuke to disciples. We talk about our own uh, Christian walk. Do we we want to obviously be careful that we don't fall into this category of oligopistos, the little faith condition. All right, well I'll pick that up. I don't want to I don't want to open up something that we can't conclude. So we'll come back to point seven, eight, and nine. Point seven has some subpoints, and eight and nine have some additional detail that I want to make sure we we don't lose track of what this leaven is because the leaven is uh, pervasive and it spreads and it influences so we'll we'll come back to this next week rather than try to jump on it here any questions reactions all right thank you father for the truth of your word we thank you for your faithfulness and father i pray that we would be diligent to respond to your word as it goes forth and, and to not confuse the illustration with the doctrine and not confuse the principle with uh, the application and father certainly we don't want to confuse an earthly idiom or proverb, uh, an aspect of cosmos wisdom with uh, the truth of your word. Uh, that's what we're accountable before, the judgment seat of Christ. And I pray that we would uh, be ever mindful of divine viewpoint in all that we do and all that we say. And I thank you, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.